Uh, for the benefit of our guests, my name is Dave, and I am the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And if you're here for the first time or the first couple times, it, it's great to have you with us. It really is. And we are grateful that you joined us. And, and what a great time to join us because the uh, Four Oaks elders have proposed that as a church, we, we adopt a new statement of faith. And that statement of faith is the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith, which has been adopted and, and used by hundreds, if not thousands, of churches in this country and, and throughout the world. So to serve the church, uh, we are going to spend this summer going through each of the articles in this statement of faith. It's a 13-article statement. It's going to be a 13-week series, and the series is, is titled Truth matters. In fact, one of the reasons why there's lights hanging from the ceiling, lights up here on the stage, is just to, to, to symbolize the fact that in Scripture, light and truth go together, heat and truth go together, and that's going to be the aim of this series. So, the first message this morning is on the topic of the Trinity. Now, one of the things I love about this church is that there are some folks in this church that like to go deeper on some of the things that we talk about each and every Sunday. And I want you to know that as a, as a pastor, that is incredibly satisfying, and, and, and we unashamedly want to include more and more people in that group that, that want to go deeper each and every Sunday morning. But if you're looking for a deeper dive on today's topic, I don't think you can do better than this book by Bruce Ware called Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as we're going to discover very shortly, the Trinity has complexity to it. But what Ware has done in this book is he has worked to simplify the complex and to put the, put the, put the cookies on the lowest shelf. And that's where guys like me need to eat the cookies from. So if you're interested in additional study, Ware's book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. So this morning's message is titled, Truth Matters, God Existing. God Existing. And since the Trinity is a systematic doctrine, we're going to be looking at not just one passage, but a number of different passages uh, all together. And we're going to get to those in just a second. But first, we got a lot to cover. We need God. So let's pray together and go to Him. Lord, we pray that you would guide us on this fascinating journey in looking not only at this entire statement of faith, but Lord, this morning on this topic of the Trinity. We, we need your help. We depend upon you. And we know that you are poised to help us to understand your word. So please do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The great theologian Augustine was once walking down the beach, and he was perplexed because he was actually trying to figure out this very doctrine that we're going to be talking about this morning. He was trying to think hard and deep about the incomprehensible doctrine of the Trinity. And because he could not grasp it fully at this point of his life, he was tempted to disbelieve it. He was tempted to reject it. 
And while he was walking upon, uh, along the beach, he came, he came upon this young little guy. He's probably five years old. And the guy was digging a hole in the sand. And then he was taking a seashell that he had, and he was running down to the water, and he was filling up the seashell with the water, and then he was running back, and he was pouring it in the hole. And Augustine comes along, and you know, he's, he's in the process of pouring it into the hole. And Augustine says to him, what, what are you doing, my, my little man? And the kid replied, I'm trying to put the ocean, the whole ocean, into this hole. And as Augustine stood there, he reported that he was, he was thunderstruck by what the kid had said to him. And he realized, as he later wrote, that, that God was speaking to him in a profound way because he realized, you know what, I'm trying to do the same thing. And he later wrote that about that experience by saying, standing on the shores of time, I am trying to get the infinite things of God into this little finite mind, and it just will not fit. It just will not fit. So listen, I want to encourage you with these words, because if at any point this morning you just feel like your brain is going, then, then you share the same experience that Augustine has had, and he can relate to you, and you can relate to him. Because this morning we're tackling the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you're wondering exactly what that means, let me just begin by reading the article right out of the Statement of Faith, of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith, and it's an article that we are proposing to adopt as a local church. And the article is called The Triune God. This is article number one, The Triune God. Quote, We believe in one God, eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect, both in his love and in his holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Immortal and eternal, he perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and to restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. This doctrine that I just read has been affirmed by this local church since the inception of this local church 25 years ago. It is what Christians of all denominational stripes have affirmed for many, many centuries, but it has not always been that way. And I think the best way to cover this doctrine might be through telling you the story of how this doctrine was ultimately formed and affirmed by the church of Jesus Christ. And that's timely for us because we've just completed this series on the book of Acts. And one of the things that we know about the converts that were being converted to Jesus Christ in the book of Acts is we know that they, most of them were coming out of the Jewish world. They were coming out of Judaism, which means 
that the majority of the converts to Christ in the New Testament were monotheistic. Now, don't let that big word intimidate you. Mono just means one. Theistic theo means God. One God. So they believed in one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. One God. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. I am one God. Now, naturally, the Jews converting to Christianity affirmed their belief in this one God, which, which by the way, was, was really pretty radical back then because most of the cultures that, they, that were in existence back then were not monotheistic, one God, but polytheistic, many gods. So you may remember when we studied Acts chapter 17 and Paul was in Athens and he's walking around and he's seeing all the different altars that were built and all the different gods they worshipped. In fact, they were so freaked out that they might miss a god that they built an altar to the unknown god because they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. But the point that I'm trying to make to start here is that the Jews being converted into Christianity maintained an Old Testament understanding of God as one. Now, here's where the story gets really intriguing. Because as, as the letters, the epistles, Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle Peter and others, as the letters and the canon of Scripture began to take shape, the early Christians began to notice that this one God only idea had real complications attached to it. Because they had the Gospel of John before them, and they began reading in the very beginning of John, chapter 1, verse 1, where John said, in the beginning was the Word. So as soon as they saw in the beginning, they knew immediately that that had a direct correlation with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning is Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning is John chapter 1. So John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, of course, is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it goes on to say, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And so the early Christians began to see the Gospels describing Jesus in the same way that God was described in Scripture. Again, John chapter 1 is a deliberate association with Genesis chapter 1, where God is introduced to all of creation as creator. They saw other parts of the Gospels where Jesus forgave sin, just like God. Only God could forgive sin. And they saw Jesus forgiving sin. They saw Jesus claim, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And by the way, for a Jew back then, there was only one way to understand that. And they knew it was an intentional reference to the Old Testament where Moses was saying to God, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am has sent you. So the early Christians are wrestling with the text and seeing these different examples in, in, the, in, in the Gospels, and it began to raise a question regarding the identity of Jesus 
in relationship to their monotheistic, their one God only beliefs. A question like, how can Jesus and the Father both be God at one and the same time? How does that happen? And by the way, the problem wasn't just the Gospels, it was the epistles as well. The epistles were beginning to push forward the same problems. They would read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, where it said, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Father and Son, same things being ascribed to the Father and the Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the church is searching the scriptures, and it was like, what are we supposed to do? God is creator. Jesus is creator. Will the real creator please stand up, for goodness sake? Is it God the Father, or is it Jesus? Now, in the early part of the third century, there arose a man whose name was Sibelius. Sibelius crusaded to protect the supremacy of God, God the Father, God as one God. And he taught that there was only one God who is the Father, but that God decided to manifest himself in certain modes at different parts of time. So he manifested himself as in the mode of the Son and in the mode of the Holy Spirit. It was one God becoming three different, taking three different forms. So he was the Father, then he was the mode of the Son, and then the mode of the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended. And this idea of the three modes became important because that formed into a doctrine that was called then modalism. It was just the view that taught that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were all fully God, but that the one God manifested in three different forms, three different modes. And the words that were used was that God was successively Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rather than simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that was playing out in the day. And then another historic moment hit the church when a bishop named Arius, Libyan by descent, began to teach a kind of modified version of this modalism in that he proposed that Jesus is worthy of honor and glory and praise, but he is still only the first and greatest creation of the true and living God. That God the Father created Jesus. Again, the intent here was to protect the supremacy of the Father. But but remember, at the root of most heresies is an exaggerated truth. You study any heresy and it will get back to some truth that that was engorged by the passions or the aspirations of the heretic. 
And so Arius argued that Jesus is far above us, that, but he was, the, he was created by God. So Jesus was not the creator, he was the created. That yes, he is Savior, but he's not co-equal to the Father. Now, it might be interesting you to know that, that there is a modern-day form of Arian doctrine in existence today. It's called the Jehovah Witnesses. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by God, that he was the firstborn of creation. He is the Savior, but he's not co-equal to the Father. In fact, when pressed, they would say that he was actually Michael, the archangel, before he was incarnated and even before the creation of the world. It's just a modern-day form of Arianism. So Arius was perpetuating this understanding, even while certain church leaders are becoming very concerned, particularly a guy named Alexander who had some serious pull, he had some serious weight back in those days, but it didn't matter because Arius had taken his theology to the street. I mean, he went on the internet, he started a blog, he had his own website, he was getting the message out. And even though there were church leaders that were growing more concerned, the reality was that the people on the street, the ideas caught fire among the people on the street to the point where Christians in many cities could be heard singing this very, you know, this very catchy tune. It was just one line. It just went, there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. And they would be singing this because the idea had become so popular and had infiltrated popular culture that it actually had become the truth, the erroneous truth, had become a song, which is often what happens with erroneous truth. And, I, you know, I don't know what the melody was. I don't know if it was country or rap or, or opera. I don't know. But, but I do know that, that, that the pop culture was buying it back then. And it became a real problem because it was catching wind all over the place. And, in fact, in, one, in every city, wrote one historian, in every city, quote, bishop was contending against bishop. And the people were contending against one another like swarms of gnats fighting in the air. And so while the, a number of the church leaders did not affirm it, there was a growing number of people that did believe in it. And the situation was becoming so serious, so combustible, that they decided to form a council, a kind of conference. And they did it in Nicaea in A.D. 325. There were 300 bishops that came from every part of where Christianity was named that gathered together in A.D. 325, in May of A.D. 325, to dialogue and to debate the merits of the Trinity versus the merits of Arianism. And it was there that a rugged, uncompromising theologian named Athanasius began to doggedly contend for the doctrine of the Trinity. So I already mentioned there was a guy named Alexander. Alexander was a bishop, but he had an assistant, and this assistant's name was Athanasia. He was an African man by descent, brilliant 
in intellect, and he saw straight through the issue. He saw right to the other side of where this doctrine goes, that if Jesus is created, it undermines the gospel. If Jesus is created, it compromises the very fabric of why Jesus would have died and who he could have saved. He actually taught that only one who is fully human could atone for human sins. Only one who is fully divine had the power to save. He saw that the gospel was being threatened by this doctrine. <laughs> and so Athanasius just went to war. I mean, he, went, he wanted to take the Arians down. And the deck was stacked against him because the Arians were, were, you know, they were all over the place. But Athanasius argued brilliantly and compellingly for the deity of Jesus Christ. Arius was there and he said, yes, Christ should be exalted. He should be glorified, but he is only the created. He is only the first. And Athanasius would counter and say, no, he is God. He is of the same nature as God. He is co-equal with God. He is co-eternal with God. And as a result of these debates that were going back and forth, the, the bishops were having to go back into the Scripture in, more, in, in harder and deeper ways, into the original languages, studying different words. And as a result of the rigor of that, of that thinking and studying the text together, slowly a unity began to emerge around what Athanasius was proposing, that Jesus is, was, and will always be fully God. And from that came one of the most famous creeds in the history of the church, the Nicene Creed, which begins as follows. We, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to the heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. It was a monumental moment in the history of the church because the church was finally united and affirmed around the nature and the essence of of Jesus Christ. Now, ironically, and I don't get this, but ironically, you figure, hey, as long as everybody's in town, why don't we, why don't we knock out the Holy Spirit as well and, and nail him down too? But it didn't work out that way because it's the same with them as it is with us and, and as it's always been, which is the, the wheels of doctrinal formation turn slowly. People deliberate. People think. And it grinds slowly. And it wasn't until after the issue of the Son was resolved 
that they began to wrestle through the issue of the Holy Spirit. And they saw the texts that were there in the Great Commission, that they were to go forward baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son, and then of the Holy Spirit as well. And they looked at Acts, and they saw how in in Acts chapter 5, how the story of Ananias and Sapphira and, and Ananias and Sapphira conspire to deceive the apostles as if they're giving more than they, than they really are. And the apostles confront them and say, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is not, was it not at your disposal? What is it that you have contrived? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now listen, check this out. You have not lied to man, but to God. So the Holy Spirit called God. And the church is now wrestling with us, saying, wait a minute, maybe it's not just the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit as well. They saw Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So as they studied the Bible, they saw particularly passages like like this, where the work of the cross through Christ was empowered by the eternal Spirit, the Spirit who is himself God. And so, in AD 381, over 50 years later, a council met in Constantinople and expanded the Nicene Creed to include the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And it read as follows, quote, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. So the church was finally and definitively united on the Trinity and the position that was set forward and Christians have stood on ever since those days is that we worship we worship one God, three persons. One God, three persons. Or as Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology, quote, God eternally exists as three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Three persons, one God, and that's who we worship. I want to talk to you a little bit about the implications of this doctrine of the Trinity, but before we go there, let me, just, let me just anticipate one reaction you might be experiencing right now. Because we, we hear about councils, and we hear about the church deliberating, and we hear about these things, and we can think, wait a minute, you mean, you mean this doctrine was formed after the canon was closed and resolved by a bunch of guys back in a room doing who knows what? I mean, it, it just it feels so earthly. It feels so fragile. It, it feels like it could be so so filled with faults and problems. But when you think about 
the way that God has revealed himself, when you think about how revelation has taken place, revelation according to scripture and validated by history has always been progressive. Meaning, meaning, Scripture didn't come to us with like guides attached to it or, or commentaries to tell us, well, actually, when Jesus said this, this is what it means. No, Scripture was entrusted to the church. And the church wrestling over the passages, particularly with the influence and, and, and the help of teachers, began to come to an understanding about what Scripture taught. And they began to affirm it. But people that were in Scripture were not always aware of what they re- all that they represented. So you have John the Baptist announcing that, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. But he couldn't possibly articulate how the Lamb of, what the Lamb of God meant for the unity of the triune God. And I've already indicated to you that the Jews, when they were being converted, maintained this idea of one God. And it would take time for them to understand the enormity of the idea that Jesus is both divine and also human. So the revelation was progressive, meaning that God revealed the meaning of his word to his church as they wrestled through the text. Now, what I want to do with you is I just want to look practically at two different implications of this. Because I realize, you know, we're sitting here and we're thinking, oh, that's nice, Dave. I get that. But, but what does this really mean for my life? Does the Trinity have any claim upon how I live? And it has many claims upon how we live, but we're only going to be able to talk about two today. So the two are, number one, the Trinity shows us community. The Trinity shows us community, and number two, the Trinity shows us roles as well. So let's talk about the first one. The Trinity shows us community. Now, I'm about to say something, and what I'm about to say is going to blow you away. Are you ready? God expects His nature, triune and eternal nature, God expects His nature to be expressed in our relationships with one another. He expects his nature to be expressed in our relationships with one another. Meaning, going all the way back to the garden, the declaration that God made over man, it is not good for man to be alone. That declaration was not simply identifying a need in the man that needed to be met. No, that declaration was saying something about what it would take for the man to be fully a person. And that was to live in community. See, it is not good for man to be alone is because God is not alone. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist each and every second of each and every minute, of each and every hour, of each and every day in perpetual community and unity, and congruity, and fellowship, and joy that they derive within each other, experiencing a kind of harmony that they transfer to each other day in and day out. And so when you look at God 
and you see God and you hear about God, one of the first things that we become aware of is that God in three persons means God in community. And that can hit us in a number of different ways because sometimes we can think that that life is really about just standing on our own, standing self-sufficient. I mean, you think about, you know, think about Hollywood. The, the formula for a Hollywood hero is basically the, the rugged individualist. He or she is alienated from their friends. They're misunderstood in society. They need no one. They are connected to no one. They are Superman or Batman or you know, Iron Man. or Back when I was growing up, it was Rambo. You know, and, and sure, you know, sometimes these, these outcasts find one another. You, you know, Bilbo might connect with the dwarves, or, or, or Iron Man might connect with the Avengers. But, but, but that's a vision of, of humanity that is perpetually put before us. And now, coming up alongside of that in our day is this idea of, of virtual community, where, where connection is digital rather than people in, in the presence of one another, sharing with one another. And we have to understand that these are the glasses through which we see, through which we, we look and, and have a vision for what humanness really is. And it's, it's, a, it's a vision of humanness apart from meaningful connection, apart from the community, and it's a vision of humanness that the Trinity opposes. Because the Trinity models and experiences something much different. I mean, think about it. When we do community in this church, when we're living life together, when you're attending your small group here at Four Oaks, you are actually expressing and strengthening your belief in the Trinity. In the Trinity. You're expressing that, and you're strengthening that. I mean, I got an email this week from somebody from our fellowship group. She was asking for help. She emailed several other members of the group as well. Not only is that a wise step to just ask for help, but, but, but there's something about that that's also recognizing that in the same way that the Trinity exists interdependent upon one another, that we too are called to exist interdependent upon one another. When Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 12, and he talks about the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, it's not simply this creative metaphor that he's called up. He's actually bringing forward a Trinitarian theology and beginning to apply it to the church. So if you're a guest here, it's important you understand that, you know, small, for, for Four Oaks, small groups is not just a trendy way to do church for us. It's an expression of our understanding of who God really is. So as we study God in Scripture, we see that that God exists in community, eternally experiencing unity and joy in fellowship. And in the same way that God experiences that, He wants us to experience that. It's what it means to be made in His image. And so we are made in His image, meaning that we're called to dwell together in community. And connections in the church are the very place where we are supposed to enjoy that and where we are supposed to reflect the relationships of the triune God. In fact, let me just make an appeal to you this morning. If you're not vitally connected to a local church or to relationships in the local church, because they're not always the same thing. You can be vitally connected to a church, but not have any relationships in the church. 
If you don't have relationships in a local church, you're missing one of the essential parts of the very reason God created the church. And that is to express His triune nature through our relationships one with another. So consider getting involved here at Four Oaks. And if you don't feel called to get here, involved here at Four Oaks, that's fine. Let us help you find another church that will enjoy, that you can enjoy relationships and enjoy your trust and your service. So the Trinity shows us community. And secondly, and finally, the Trinity shows us roles. The Trinity shows us roles. Now, do you remember how I started that first point of application? God expects His nature, triune and eternal, God expects His nature to be expressed in our relationships. Okay, now I want you to think, think about this with me. One of the primary ways God's relationships to one another are revealed is through authority and submission to words that this world despises. Authority and submission. Think about it. The doctrine of the Trinity lands upon us at a moment where the idea of authority has never been more spurned. Never? I don't, perhaps maybe not in the history of the world has authority ever been more challenged? Has authority ever been more spurned? I mean, the authority of, of the Constitution, the authority of police, the, the authority of the church. The authority of the church is seen as kind of a lever for manipulating people. And there are some ways where the church has earned, you know, earned that reputation, but nevertheless, there's something that's under assault there. The authority of the home is oftentimes equated with domination. I saw an article just this past week, just on Friday. The article was titled, Suspicion of Authority is Feeding, Suspicion of authority feeding the Ebola Panic. And, 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 you know, begin to read the article and just found that, yeah, yeah people don't trust the government. They don't trust what the government say, says. And, and the message that you get on the... On the Internet, on TV, and all media outlets is basically, you know, hey, we're in a day where authority can't be trusted. And, and there's a similar message on the other side of that with, with submission. Submission is not something that's good and glorious, according to God. Submission means a loss of identity. If I submit to somebody, I, I disappear. I lose something that's that's fundamental to whom I am. A part of my personhood is lost as I submit. So we have to realize that even as we begin talking about this point, that, that authority and submission, there's a, there's a suspicion of authority and submission that is like the air we breathe. I mean, we, we don't see it just like air. We don't see it, but we're constantly consuming it. We imbibe it. It it. it gives life to some of the things that we believe. And the funny thing is that into that chaos comes the Trinity with this message. God loves authority. God loves submission. In fact, God loves it so much that He determined that the Trinity would be organized according to authority and submission. 
So the Father would be the head, quote-unquote, the head of the Trinity. He would be supreme. The Son, who coexists and is co-eternal with the Father, would subordinate himself by emptying himself of the prerogatives of deity, emptying himself of the glory that he had, and coming to earth and incarnating as a man, fully human, fully divine, but he would subordinate himself, submit himself to the Father because he loves the Father, because he finds joy in the Father, and then the Spirit would then apply the work of the Father and the Son. The Spirit at times would live to exalt the Son, and at times the Son would follow the leading of the Spirit when he was walking here on earth. And here's where it gets really challenging, and that is that to be a Christian means that we serve a Trinitarian God, which means that we love and embrace roles, roles that include authority and submission. Now listen, let me just dispel something right up front. Let me speak right to the issue that that your mind might be going to. The reason why a husband is called to lead his wife, he's supposed to have a head, be a head of his wife in a similar way that God is the head of the Trinity. And the reason why elders are limited to men in the church has absolutely nothing to do with competence. It has absolutely nothing to do with capabilities. In fact, if competence were the criteria for leading the church, the pastor's wives in in Four Oaks should be leading this church. I mean, have you met any of those ladies? A very competent group of women. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with that. The issue is this. God wants to reflect the order of the Trinity in two different areas within the world, in the home and in the church. Not in industry, not in government, not in education. There's two areas where God says, okay, in these two areas, because these two areas are fundamental I want my glory reflected. I want my order reflected. I want submission reflected. I want authority reflected. I'm going to choose these two areas for it to happen. See, for God, it was never about capabilities. It was never about discrimination. It was never about competence. It was never about competence. And listen, I'm boarding a flight recently, and people got on the flight, they're sitting at the end of the row, and then other people are coming in, and they're going to the window seat, which was prearranged, and so they're having to get the person to stand up so that they they can get through to the window seat. And at one point, a guy who's sitting right behind me says, you know, why don't they just make all the window seats zone one? So that people that get on the flights that are zone one can go immediately into the interior and sit by the window. And then another guy from the other side of the plane, says, yeah, yeah, why don't they do that? And then a woman calls out from the back, and she says, because they don't have women organizing the zones. <laughs> and I thought, not only is she sharp, but she's probably right. <laughs> Listen, if these passages read differently, if these passages were flipped and, and women were head the head, things might run smoother. Because let's face it, speaking on behalf of the men, we can be morons sometimes. But God's goal has never been to uphold a vision of competence. 
God's goal has never been to uphold a vision of efficiency. God's goal has been to uphold a vision of order and authority and submission based upon the Trinity. And so to be a Christian is to affirm the need for that and to celebrate the beauty of that, listen, even when we don't understand it completely. I mean, it's similar to what Augustine realized about the Trinity. He said, standing on the shores of time, I am trying to get the infinite things of God into this little finite mind. And then he said, it just will not fit. Listen, I get it if you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, hey, right now, this just doesn't fit. No, I get that. Augustine would get that because eventually he, he moved in that direction as well. We don't always understand it, but by faith, we submit to it because it pleases God and because it reflects the order and the beauty of the Trinity. Let's pray.